Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 8th episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. In February 1958, the heart was torn out of Manchester United in Munich. The Busby Babes, though, had been part of a wider phenomenon that had come about in the years following England's defeat to Hungary in 1953. A new generation of coaches and players was coming through, and they weren't going to settle for the lifestyle of their predecessors. In other areas, too, there was growth, as professional football started to industrialise. England, though, needed a shake-up. This is the story of football in England and Wales between 1958 and 1964. It takes something special as a professional footballer to be loved in three separate places in three different countries. And it says something about the abilities of John Charles that his death at the age of 72 in 2004 should have led to such fulsome tributes from Leeds, Turin and Wales. That's the thing about great footballers. In their own way, they belong to us all. John Charles started his career at Swansea Town, but left the club before even playing a single game for them poached by Leeds United in 1949 at the age of 17, while still playing for Swansea's reserves. It was a canny bit of scouting on Leeds' part. Charles stayed at Ellen Road for eight years, scoring 157 goals in 297 games for the club. And when he did leave, it was an arrangement that suited all parties. Juventus offered £65,000 for him, in a deal brokered by Gigi Ferranace, a Juventus scout who doubled as a football agent. This was double the world record transfer fee at the time, and Leeds United were in the second division. Charles certainly didn't go for the money. He was on £20 a week at Juventus, but those close to him said that it was the opportunity to live abroad, to play at a great club, and for the quality of the football. He made his debut for Juventus against Verona on the 8th of September 1957. Charles ended the season with 27 goals in 34 matches, with Juventus the Serie A champions for the first time since 1952. The club would go on to win Serie A in both 1959 and 1960, and Charles would stay there until 1962 scoring 108 goals in 152 games in all competitions. Nicknamed Il Buon Gigante by adoring Juventus supporters, 
He never received a red or yellow card throughout his career and even recorded, with some success, a couple of singles whilst living in Italy. All four of the home nations qualified for the 1958 World Cup finals in Sweden and Wales kicked off in Sandviken against Hungary. The Hungarian team which had humiliated England in London five years earlier was already just a memory, broken up by a combination of age and the aftermath of the Soviet crushing of the uprising in Budapest of 1956. They drew 1-1, with Charles scoring for Wales. Further draws against Mexico and, impressively with the benefit of hindsight, the host nation and eventual finalist Sweden, saw them to a playoff match against Hungary, which they won by two goals to one. This victory, however, came at a cost. Charles was kicked out of the game by the Hungarian players, all overseen by an especially lenient Russian referee. Such was the nature of Charles' injury during the playoff match that he missed Wales' quarter-final against Brazil, a match now better remembered as that which featured the first major splash in the international scene by Pelé, a player who would come to define Brazilian football for the next decade and a half. It's one of the great what-ifs of international football, though. What if John Charles had been fit and played for Wales against Brazil in the quarter-finals of the 1958 World Cup? Brazil only won narrowly without Charles playing, and he was probably one of the finest footballers in the world at that particular time. Wales would not qualify for the finals of another major tournament until 2016, more than 12 years after his death. Some people say a man is made out of mud A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bones A man that's weak and a back that's strong You load 16 tons What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store John Charles was a member of the last generation of players who could have a glittering playing career without earning enough money to be comfortable in retirement to some extent or other. The Football Association had first allowed professionalism from 1885 but from a decade later it also brought in a maximum wage rule which capped player earnings at roughly twice those of a skilled tradesman. The retain and transfer system was introduced at the same time. This was a restriction which prohibited players from moving from one football league club to another by allowing clubs to retain a player's registration once a contract was ended, giving them the final say over a player's rights. Early in the 1940s, The maximum wage was raised to £7 a week, with players being paid a minimum retainer of nothing at all during the closed season. In 1947 it was raised again to £12 a week, this time after a tribunal. Throughout the 1950s, increases were steady, to £14 a week in 1951, £15 a week in 1953, 
£17 a week in 1957 and finally levelling off at £20 a week in 1958. By this point though, there was a widespread and growing feeling amongst players that football clubs were growing fat off revenues from huge gate receipts whilst they were playing for next to nothing. Throughout the late 1940s and 1950s, low unemployment and collective bargaining had allowed the middle class to continue its proliferation. A new executive class was starting to show its face, and professional footballers were never going to want to be far from that lifestyle for very long. In 1957, Jimmy Hill, then playing for Fulham, was elected chairman of the Professional Footballers Association. John Charles had just gone to Italy, whilst others were also looking to go to other countries where such arcane and restrictive rules as the maximum wage simply didn't exist. Some clubs were playing illicit bonuses to players to persuade them to stay. The confrontation between the Football League and the PFA began when the league suspended several Sunderland players suspected of taking under-the-counter payments. Hill worked successfully to have them reinstated, and then challenged the league, but took matters further, demanding the end of the wage cap and the retain and transfer system. Sharply dressed and amiable, Hill was highly adept at playing the media to his benefit. For example, the chairman of the TUC, Ted Hill, appealed to the public to boycott matches. Neither the FA nor the Football League had much of a comeback beyond vague and unsubstantiated claims regarding redundancies. Hill's membership voted overwhelmingly in favour of industrial action at the start of 1961, but 72 hours before the strike was due to start, the League Management Committee were persuaded to abolish the maximum wage. The PFA, emboldened by the news, opted not to call off the strike. There had, after all, been no mention by the League of the Retain and Transfer System. Hill and two union officials were summoned to the Ministry of Labour to negotiate with Football League Secretary Alan Hardacre, League President and Barnsley Chairman Joe Richards and Chelsea Chairman Joe Mears. The PFA prevailed again. The strike was off. This report, from before the agreement was reached, shows both Hill and Hardacre in a bullish mood. The players, who are led by Jimmy Hill, chairman of the Professional Footballers Association, demand a freer contract, a bigger wage and a guaranteed share of transfer fees. Why don't you go on strike if you've got all the players in your union? It isn't our intention to go on strike because uh, there's a phrase, softly, softly, catchy monkey, which is perhaps our maxim. Well, of course, uh, they're pressing for more money for star players, but what they've got to face is this, that if the star player gets more than there is in the, uh, in the kitty to share out amongst players, then inevitably there must be unemployment amongst players, or, or a lot of players will get a lot less. If that's not quite good enough, then will the players get more or not to spares? That I couldn't say. Then you go to a meeting and meet your opponents, as it were, the members of the management committee of the Football League, uh, and then you see something that you don't like at all. And the way in which they were treating players and the way in which the secretary of the league, Alan Hardacre, looked down his nose at professional players, that set, set up a kind of inner rage. Suddenly it's obs obsessing my mind all the time. How can we win? How can we win? Shortly afterwards, Johnny Haynes famously became the first £100 a week footballer at Fulham. 
Jimmy Hill, who'd worked so tirelessly to abolish the maximum wage rule, only benefited from it himself for 10 months before ending his own playing career. On the whole though, players at the top level were becoming financially comfortable, so long as they weren't stupid with their money from this point on. Meanwhile, a battle rumbled on, even after these rules were changed. George Easton wanted to leave Newcastle United, who refused to let him go, even after the contractual issue had been resolved with the aversion of the PFA strike, the union urged him to continue the case, which he did, even after Newcastle sold him to Arsenal. The George Eastham case continued until 1963, when the High Court ruled in his favour, saying that the league regulations and FA rules amounted to a restraint of trade for players. The post-war boom, though, was categorically over by the end of the 1950s regardless. Crowds were down. If players' wages were going to increase, then clubs needed to evolve, and with the rise of European football having only happened for a small number of clubs, a way of helping clubs reduce the impact of flagging revenues was needed. A couple of years earlier, the league had done away with the anachronism that was the 3rd Division North and 3rd Division South. In the early 1920s, travel was expensive, and with an influx of smaller clubs from non-league football when the Football League expanded to a Division 3 South, it was decided to do so into two lower regional divisions. By the late 1950s though, coach and car travel had proliferated. The economic argument for regional divisions no longer made sense, and removing them would also end the possibility that these two divisions could become lopsided in terms of quality or representation. It was, in short, more meritocratic. The severance had to be done in one clean cut. At the end of the 1957-58 season, the top halves of the 3rd Division North and 3rd Division South remained a 3rd Division. The bottom halves of the tables were effectively relegated a level, into the brand new 4th Division of the Football League. The bottom four clubs would now have to be voted in come the end of the season. In 1960, Gateshead were replaced by Oxford United. Two years later, higher travel costs were considered one of the contributory factors in the mid-season resignation of Accrington Stanley from the Football League. Alongside the decision to purchase a second-hand stand that was wholly inappropriate for football and without having given any consideration to transport costs. None of this, however, was particularly increasing revenues, but opportunities were opening up before the clubs. By the end of the 1950s, most of them had floodlights, which opened up gaps in the schedules which a new competition could fill. The Football League, also spying the possibility of undermining the FA a little, stepped in with the Football League Cup, which would be played over two legs, including the final, on midweek nights throughout the season. It wasn't an immediate success. The biggest clubs simply refused to enter for several years, and its first final had to be played before the start of the following season in 1961. But it does remain with us to this day. The competition was the brainchild of Alan Hardacre, for 20 years the brains behind the Football League. His idea was to break the Football Association's 90-year hold over knockout competition. A fresh challenge for his member clubs a new source of entertainment for fans. 
the League Cup final would become the People's final. The first of his people to contest it were Rotherham United and Aston Villa in 1961. But five of the country's principal league clubs turned down invitations to take part in the inaugural tournament and there were further notable abstentions before the competition found its feet. Indeed, that very first final could only be accommodated at the start of the following season. It was a two-legged affair, one for Aston Villa by Peter McParland. A number of the top teams didn't play in it and uh, it was something new on this. I think it helped then. We didn't play much midweek football other than replays of the Cup, uh, FA Cup, but uh, it meant then that we had an extra tournament to play in and uh, it meant you didn't train so much. The negative effects of ending the maximum wage in terms of concentrating power in a smaller number of clubs didn't come to pass, at least not immediately. From 1959 to 1965, seven different clubs won the Football League Championship in seven years. Probably the strongest team of this era was the Tottenham Hotspur team of 1960-61. Manager Bill Nicholson made, despite losing the first six years of his playing career to the war, more than 300 appearances for Spurs up to 1955. And when he was appointed manager in 1958, he got off to a bang beating Everton by 10 goals to 4 in his first match. The double of winning the FA Cup and the league title in the same season had taken on a strangely near mythological status by the start of the 1960s. No team had completed it in the 20th century to that point. Teams had come close, but the relentless nature of the season still seemed to trip up clubs who were chasing both of the big trophies. Spurs, however came out of the traps flying at the start of the 1960-61 season. They won their first 11 consecutive league matches and dropped just four points before the turn of the year. Sunderland set the game going at Tottenham, facing the white-shirted Spurs in the six-round replay. Which of these great sides would meet Burnley in the semi-final? 65,000 fans jammed White Hart Lane for the thrill of finding out. Wakeham tipped the ball round the side. That encouraged Spurs to try again. White shot hit the crossbar. Another escape for Sunderland. But there was no holding Tottenham. Jones passed to Allen. Goal for Spurs. Five minutes later, the immaculate John White sent Jones away. And that wandering right winger put in a hard shot, which Wakeham parried. Only for the ball to go to centre-forward Smith. He made no mistake. A minute from half-time, Spurs struck again. The mercurial Jones passed to Dyson. And the outside left got goal number three. Second half. Three down, Sunderland was still full of fight, as any team has need to be at White Hart Lane. Brown was safe in Spurs' goal. Skipper Danny Blanchflower marshaled the wonder team perfectly, initiating another attack. Allen center and a corner. It was Dyson who got goal number four. Sunderland tried their hardest to stay in the game. However, they were now only a shadow of the team that drew with Tottenham at Roker Park. They'd encountered Spurs at their best. And where is the team that could survive such a meeting? Jones was on the warpath again. He passed to left half Mackay. And there was another goal. Spurs won 5-0. By the time they took their foot off the pedal, winning just four matches from eight between the middle of January and the middle of March, Spurs were already too far clear for anybody else to do anything much about it. They ended up winning the First Division Championship by eight points having scored 115 goals in 42 league matches, and they completed their season 
by beating Leicester City at Wembley to win the FA Cup, becoming the first club to lift the English League Championship and FA Cup in the same season since 1897. They retained the FA Cup against Burnley the following year, and in 1963 became the first British club to win a European trophy, when they beat Atletico Madrid by five goals to one in the final of the European Cup Winners' Cup in Rotterdam. Spurs, however, did decline. In 1964, John White, a young inside forward who'd been among the goalscorers in Rotterdam, was killed, struck by lightning on a golf course in North London while trying to shelter from a thunderstorm. Transfer policy became haphazard, with the club's good signings, such as goalkeeper Pat Jennings from Watford in 1964, matched by the bad. Bill Nicholson could never quite repeat the success of Spurs' double-winning team of 1961. The 1962 league championship was one of the surprise league titles of the 20th century, with the winners playing their first ever season of top-flight football, Ipswich Town. Alf Ramsey had spent the majority of his playing career in the same Spurs team as Bill Nicholson, also winning the second and first division titles in successive seasons as a player at White Hart Lane. 1953, however, was a bad year for Ramsey. A bad mistake in Spurs' FA Cup semi-final against Blackpool cost them the match, and he was one of the players that never played for England again after their Wembley defeat against Hungary in November of that year. When Ramsey left Spurs in 1955, it was to take up the player-manager's job at Ipswich Town, who had just been relegated from the, into the third division south. They won promotion back at the end of his first season in charge, and three years later won promotion into the first division. No one, however, was prepared for what happened next. Ramsey's team, based on a strong defence and two strikers, Ray Crawford and Ted Phillips, who between them scored more than 60 goals, ran clear at the top of the table. The key to the side was considered to be left-winger Jimmy Ledbetter, who Ramsey had moved into a deep-lying left midfield position. Ledbetter found that his diagonal passing across defenders seemed to catch them out, allowing Crawford or Phillips in on the blind side to create chances. A strong second half to the season, which saw them lose just one league match after the first weekend in February, saw them over the line for a shock title win, three points clear of second place Burnley and four points ahead of the previous year's champions Tottenham Hotspur. It was with John Cobbold, the Ipswich chairman, that Ramsey formed one of his closest relationships. Cobbold was present on one of the rare occasions when Ramsey let his hair down in public. Well, I don't think Alf will like this one much, but, but he'll have to lump it. Um... After he had got us from the 3rd Division to the 2nd Division, and we were down at Southampton, and uh, we had to spend the night down there, so we organised uh, a quiet party. And um, at one moment I looked round, and there was Alf under a table, singing, maybe it's because I'm a Londoner. For a novice manager, Ramsey's success at Ipswich was staggering. The stories told that after watching his first match there, he was ready to pack his bags and go. They were in the third division and revealed every prospect of staying there. But then the run began. 1957, promotion from third division to second. Four years later, promotion from second division to first. Twelve months later, Ipswich, league champions of England. 
While the big, fashionable clubs shook their heads in bewilderment, Ipswich celebrated, country style. Ramsey's success with Ipswich Town didn't go unnoticed at Lancaster Gate. Walter Winterbottom had been appointed as the manager of the England team in 1946, but he didn't have full control over national team selection though. That remained picked by the FA's selection committee, though as the years came to pass and Winterbottom's knowledge came to be understood, the committee came to depend increasingly upon his advice. If anything, England performed substantially worse at the 1958 World Cup than they had four years earlier. They drew all three of their group matches and ended with an identical record to the USSR, which necessitated a playoff between the two teams, which the USSR won by a goal to nil in Gothenburg. It would take England until 2014 to fail to qualify from the group stages of a World Cup finals again. Four years later, the finals were held in Chile, the first time that the World Cup finals had been held in South America since 1950. Qualification was fairly straightforward for England. In a three-team group with Portugal and Luxembourg, they only dropped one point from four games away to Portugal and had their course moved still further by a shock 4-2 win for Luxembourg against Portugal. Wales, however, didn't find a way through. They lost to both East Germany and Czechoslovakia in their group and the Czechs qualified in their place. In May 1960, Chile suffered the largest earthquake ever recorded. Anything up to 7,000 people were killed. The national infrastructure was shattered. The show had to go on, but facilities in the country were understandably basic, and heavy rain added a hint of gloom to the tournament. England, in this respect, offered pure pathetic fallacy. In their opening match, they lost 2-1 to Hungary, with their only goal coming from a second-half Ron Flowers penalty. They rallied for their second match with a 3-1 win against Argentina, but in their final match, they played out a listless, goalless draw against Bulgaria. None of England's three group matches were watched by crowds of over 10,000, and the Bulgaria match could only draw 5,700 people. England qualified on goal average over Argentina, with Hungary winning the group. Finishing in second place had significant ramifications though. As group runners-up, they had to play a group winner in the quarter-finals and they drew Brazil, the holders and white-hot favourites to retain their crown. Brazil won with room to spare, but England did go in level at half-time, with Jerry Hitchens having cancelled out Garincha's 31st-minute opener for Brazil. In the second half, though, Brazil were comfortable. Garincha and Vava scored to open up a comfortable lead with an hour played, and from there on, the match was a comfortable exercise in running down the clock for the favourites. The match is probably best remembered nowadays, though, for a call of nature. A few minutes in, a stray dog came onto the field. After escaping the advances of Brazilian goalkeeper Gilmar and then Garincha, England's Jimmy Greaves stepped in. The striker got down on all fours, crawling slowly towards the dog before wrestling it to the ground and handing it over to the officials. During the incident, though, the dog had urinated all over Greaves, 
who was forced to play the rest of the match in a shirt which he described himself as looking more like a Brazil shirt than an England shirt. Legend has it that Garincha found the incident so funny that he later adopted the dog. Number four, Zito. Back to Jalma Santos. And again, we've got a little, a black dog on the field, rather larger than the one we had at Rankawa. Now Zito, this is the halfback. But away comes Norman to Haynes. England are going to have to move this ball quickly. The Brazilians not quite such a blanket defence as other teams who have been playing. And Mr. Monsieur Schwint of France, the referee stopping the play until we remove the dog. Defending animal looks quite happy. Now what's the chance of Ron Springett? Obviously not so good and Richard Schwint now appealing to officials not to sit there and do nothing but to come onto the field and do something. Now Gorincha going to have a shot. This is Gorincha number seven. A better body swerve than Gorincha's got. Now Jimmy Greaves. Willie. Well done Jimmy. Jimmy Greaves already the hero of this game. But the dog obviously not like being sent off the field so early. Just 15 years earlier, that this result was no great surprise would have been unthinkable. England may have had an inkling that, should they meet them, Brazil would give them a game, but they wouldn't have anticipated that such a result would be so supine, without causing anything like a tremor, anywhere around the world. England's decline had been rapid, and it was by this time a matter of the utmost importance for the Football Association. England had been awarded the 1966 World Cup Finals by FIFA at an election held in Rome in August 1960. Failure at the 1962 World Cup had not sent a very strong message from England to the rest of the world about their potential, even as hosts. Something had to change. When Winterbottom resigned after the 1962 World Cup Finals, Ramsey, a former England international who just won the Football League Championship with a team of outsiders, was the obvious choice to succeed him. There was, however, a significant sticking point. Ramsey's key requirement was that he be given full charge of the job, including team selection, and one of Walter Winterbottom's final acts as the England manager was to persuade the FA that Ramsey be given this. Astonishingly, as late as the summer of 1962, the England national football team for every match was picked by a committee. The FA eventually acceded to Ramsey's demands and offered him the position. In more than one sense, we might think of Alf Ramsey as being the first true England manager. He was eventually confirmed into his new position in October 1962, but Ramsey stayed on as the manager of Ipswich until the end of the 1962-63 season. The team was struggling following their league championship win, and the strains of this might have been too much for the club had Ramsey left as well. Ipswich stayed up that season, but their 1961-62 First Division Championship is now considered to be one of British football's great flashes in the pan. They survived the threat of relegation at the end of their championship defence, 
but it would only be one more year before they were relegated back again. If the FA needed extra cause to be a little nervous at the prospect of hosting the 1966 World Cup finals following their defeat against Brazil, just nine days after Brazil lifted the Jules Rimet trophy, Telstar, the first satellite, was launched. Pictures filmed on the other side of the world could now be seen, more or less as they happened, on the other side of the world. Television coverage of previous World Cups had been patchy, the FA had been able to sweep losing to the USA in 1950 under the carpet in a way that simply wouldn't be possible just 10 years later because there was no television coverage of that tournament. In 1954 and 1958 there had been live relays of some matches around Europe via the European Broadcasting Union but the technology still didn't exist to broadcast live around the world. As late as 1962 it took three days for footage to get back from Chile for broadcast in Europe. Telstar, however, removed that barrier. The 1966 World Cup finals would be seen live, for better or for worse, around much of the world. By 1962, televised domestic football was still very much the same as it had been for much of the previous decade. The 1953 FA Cup final the 1953 England versus Hungary match and the 1954 match between Wolverhampton Wanderers and Honved had all demonstrated that there was public interest in televised football but it was still logistically difficult to broadcast and the clubs didn't want TV cameras in their grounds reducing their attendances as they were absolutely certain would happen. In 1960 though there was a brief flirtation with something a little more modern when ABC Television bought the rights to show Football League live matches on Saturday evenings. The first selected match was Blackpool versus Bolton Wanderers, a game which might have seemed quite glamorous just a few years earlier, but by this time looked rather like it has been. A disappointing television audience watched a disappointing game played in front of a disappointingly low attendance. The following week, Arsenal were due to host the cameras but, unimpressed with the start of the televised football experiment, they withdrew permission to cover their game against Newcastle United. And when Tottenham Hotspur quickly followed suit for their home game against Aston Villa, the decision was made to quietly shelve the experiment. There would not be another live football league match shown on television in the UK until October 1983. Live televised football may have been comprehensively put back in its box, but at the start of the 1962-63 season, there came at least the start of regular highlights. Anglia Television, the East of England contractor for ITV, paid £1,000 for the rights to cover a season's worth of matches in their region, inspired by Ipswich Town's First Division Championship earlier that year. In the north-east of England, Tyne Tees television followed suit. Their programmes, 
called Match of the Week and Shoot, respectively, began at the start of the new season. They were rough around the edges, usually featuring highlights of only one match, and there were further challenges in clubs being able to support the needs of the cameras as well. At the top of this list was light. Floodlights were sometimes too dim for broadcasting to be possible, and while some clubs had almost nowhere to put television cameras and a commentator. For example, having bought regional highlights for the east of England, Anglia Television found that one of the biggest clubs in their catchment area, Norwich City, had no space for television cameras along the side of the ground at Carrow Road. Until Reconstruction in 1972, all Norwich matches had to be filmed from behind one goal. In April 1964, the BBC launched their new television service, BBC Two. It was only available in the London area to start with, and you needed a new, higher-definition television set to get the full benefit of it. But the corporation was keen to get some initiative back from ITV, in the race for a complete package of football programming. The BBC offered the Football League £20,000 for a season of rights to show highlights of Football League matches. They also emphasised technological angles that could sell the positives of the game to a television audience. This time, the Football League agreed, subject to the corporation agreeing to show some games from the lower divisions and the league also insisted on the condition that the BBC wouldn't publicly announce which match they would be covering until after kick-off time on a Saturday afternoon. Match of the Day launched in August 1964 with a match between the defending champions Liverpool and Arsenal. It was both introduced and commentated upon by Kenneth Wollstenholme, who made his introduction in front of the cop. Liverpool won by three goals to two and the television audience was just 20,000, substantially fewer than had been at Anfield in the first place. And of course, since BBC Two was still only available in the London area, most supporters of the home team weren't even able to watch their team win. Regular televised league football, though, had arrived, and this was just in time for the BBC and ITV, who were combined forces and were now on a race against time in order to provide world-class coverage for the first World Cup finals to be shown live around much of the world they had to try to present England in the best possible light. Much the same, it might be argued, was expected of Alf Ramsey as well.
listening to this 200% podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Find us on Facebook by searching 200%.net or on Twitter at 2WOHP. Be good to each other and robots.